0: I also extend to welcome to each one here this evening. We uh I was just reading through the book of Deuteronomy and, uh, you know, uh, reading some articles this week in Midnight Call, and, uh, there's really no, uh, there's nothing to compare with God or the people of Israel, and, uh, there's no people that God has spoken to, uh, you know, where they, uh. Listen to him speak than the children of Israel. And in my studies, uh, when I uh, got to the place where I saw that somehow the picture is a lot bigger than what I used to think, and I probably are I'm not close to having near all of it, but a writer. In uh, an article in the Midnight Call says that God uh, the word Israel is used something like 2,757 times in the Bible and uh, so God does talk a lot about that and to be able to understand in part at least that uh Israel and the church are two separate entities even though they, they blend together. As Paul in uh, to the Corinthians in the 10th chapter, in the latter part of the chapter, he makes this statement. He says, give none offense neither to the Jew nor the Gentile nor the church of God. Now, in the Church of God, Jew and Gentile are alike. But, uh, there is something about God's way of working. He, He used the seed of Abraham to bring Christ here on this earth and had a special message. And, uh, so, uh, very, very unfortunate. We're living in a day when there are many people saying that the church has replaced Israel and that God is finished with Israel. Well, somehow they are overlooking or not believing many Bible verses that make it very clear that God is not finish with them. And we'll be getting to that a little later. Uh, we're here, and uh, of course I started out by, in introduction, making a point of, uh, that I believe that the early church fathers took the Bible literally. There's enough of writings that make that clear. And uh, that uh, this idea of making the uh, the prophecies, the apocalyptic scriptures figurative uh, does not come from an in-depth study of the scripture. It was put together... By Gnostics and, uh, Greek philosophers who tried to, to make their philosophy mesh or synchronize with scripture. And they, the one reason that I have chosen that uh, that is not the correct way is because of the way that they arrived at that a non-literal method of interpretation. And when you do that, you can make it say what you want. The the burden of proof, of a meaning, of a passage of scripture is turned to the interpreter rather than to the word of God. And so, uh, uh, I don't think I'll go through my journey again, how I did that, but it was because of the fact that when I started teaching Bible school, I did not want to teach something that is contrary to Scripture. And so if I say anything here that is not according to Scripture, I want you to uh, be like the Bereans and uh, search the Scripture, see if what we're saying is correct. That's what they did for, for the apostles, and so <clears throat> we started out then by going through the uh, prophecies of uh, that relate to Christ's coming, uh, beginning at Genesis three fifteen, going down to the Book of Daniel, and how that in every generation God had something. For instance. Uh, and now, when he blessed his sons, he singled out uh, uh, Shem. And uh, when he, when uh, A, uh, yeah, Abraham's sons, Jacob. And uh, when he blessed his sons, he singled out Judah. And uh, so on down through. And then uh, we also uh, looked at uh, where is Christ today? And we looked at the scriptures that talk about him sitting at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made his footstool. And there's quite a number of those. We then... Uh, went to uh, the uh, return of Christ. And first of all, uh, uh, Christ will come for his own. And we touched a little bit on the different scriptures that talk about uh, him coming in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye and when the trump sounds, and things like that, and compare them with the scriptures that talk about every eye shall see him, and uh, they will cry for rocks and mountains to cover them. And uh, these are two events at two different times. And we've been looking at that, and of course, I, I think, that uh, the scripture would indicate that we are, uh, the next major event will be the sound of the trumpet and the the church will be called out. And uh, so we looked at some of those scriptures and then we took uh, the judgment seat of Christ where... uh, I believe is a place where we, uh, uh, I don't know what the setting will be, but it's a place where we will get our rewards and our trophies. And I shared how that, uh, I saw the ruins of Corinth in 1973, and we got up to a place, and there was a big pulpit, bigger than this, and on the front, it says Bima. And that's the, uh, that's the uh, Greek word for judgment seat. And so I said to Admiral Stoltz, he was our guide, and I said, what's this? He said, this is where the uh, athletes got their trophies. And, uh, that puts on a whole new picture. And, uh, We believe that the judgment seat of Christ is a place where the believers are gathered together. This is not a place where we find out whether we're saved or not. If we want to know whether we're saved, we better make sure here in this life. If we're not saved before the trumpet sound, uh, we have missed it. Now, uh, maybe that, maybe that's not saying it quite correctly because uh, I think God will still be working through those who will remain here after the, uh, after the rapture. But I think there's something about that uh, probably, if nothing attracts us there now, there won't be anything that will after that either. And of course, that's, I'm not, that's, I'm not quoting not script when I'm saying that. So that takes us to the marriage of the Lamb. And if you want to, you can turn with me to Revelation 19. And, uh, I don't know what you think about when you think about the marriage of the Lamb. And, uh, I didn't, I never noticed it. At our last meeting, a young brother came to me. So I had just mentioned the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. And he told me that uh, the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper are two events. And they're not at the same time. The marriage is simply. The church, the bride of Christ, having some kind of ceremony—I don't know what that'll be like—and uh, the marriage supper uh, will include probably all that are there. And I've just been—I've just been trying to think. Uh, How is this going to be? There's going to be a lot of people. And uh, it would be all the believers. Now the church, as I understand the church, as it is given in scripture, are all those that are saved from Pentecost until the rapture. And till God is finished, will all be blended together in our own places and whatever that'll be like. And we'll be, uh, we won't be complaining about anything. I don't think so. I think everything will be right. See, and I go back to Second Peter 3 where Peter talks about the, the elements melting and all those things that take place. And he kind of caps that off by saying, but we, the believers in Jesus Christ, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And that uh, dwelleth righteousness has the idea that there won't be anything around us that's not right nothing to distract us from the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so uh, here in uh, Revelation 19 uh, is after uh, the judgment on on the nations and so on and you notice in beginning of this it says after these things i heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying alleluia salvation and glory and honor and power unto the lord our god for true and righteous are his judgments for he hath judged the great whore and did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at that and again there was a rejoicing The four and twenty elders, the four beasts, fall down and worship, at God that sat on the throne, saying, "Amen and hallelujah." Now, if we would take time, we'd go to chapter four and five. We notice that in the in the fourth chapter, the scene is around the throne, and they are. Rejoicing and giving praise and honor to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, saved us by shedding His own blood. In the, uh, the that's in the fifth chapter, in the fourth chapter, the rejoicing and they are honoring Him that He is worthy because of creation. In chapter five, the rejoicing is the fact. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're all together and for redemption. And there's where it talks about uh, he's worthy because he saved us by his own blood. And so uh, the beginning of chapter four, it says that I saw, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven First voice which I heard was, a, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up, come up hither. And I think, from what John writes, from this place on, it was given from a perspective of heaven. And, uh, not necessarily uh, on the earth because he was taken out. And uh, I sat under a Bible teacher who uh, took us through this one morning and uh, he was talking about this and that this is kind of a foreshadow or a type of the church being taken out. And... uh, And uh, when the bell rang that morning, there was a brother sitting beside me, and he looked at me. He said, we're going to have to come back to earth. It was just so real. And, uh, but now what I want to notice, in Revelation 19, verse 11, he again saw heaven open, but not to enter in. But it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Is a description of him here, uh, eyes of a flame of fire, and uh, many crowns on his head, a name written that man knew, no man knew, but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and uh, his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him, upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nation, and he shall he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And so, um, verse 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in... um, in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, and he's inviting the fowls of the air to come and help themselves unto a supper. And uh, kind of an interesting picture there. But uh, And so, as I look at this, there's a time when Nations will be gathered together and they will be uh, there will be an attempt to st- destroy all Israel. And uh, the picture I get with this passage and some of the others uh, that relate to this, it almost looks like when they see him coming, they will turn toward him and he will smite them with the sword of his mouth. And uh, we're living to see the day when Israel has very little support from any other nation. In the Arab schools today, they do not have Israel on the map. They say they don't belong there. And they're accusing Israel of taking their land. And uh, there's nothing that could be further from the truth because God gave them that land and will, the Lord tarries. We want to lead up to where we'll be going, uh, looking at the reign of Christ on this earth for a thousand years. And in that time, I think uh, he will bring all things together. And uh, maybe we should just, maybe we should just for a uh, kind of a refreshing of what the bible says in first corinthians uh, 15. we call this a resurrection chapter but there's uh, something interesting here gives an order and uh, let's break in uh, right place here. Let's start in at verse uh, 20. It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man... Came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. When all these things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And I'm still trying to put together what is all included in God being all in all when everything is brought under subjection all evil is going to be put out and uh, everything will be right and uh, so we have that all right let's go back then to the uh, to the uh, marriage We have scriptures, and I have some written down here. If you want to make reference to that, where uh, in Revelation twenty one two he makes reference to the uh, to the bride, uh, the church. Revelation twenty two seven, and also in Ephesians five twenty five, it makes reference to husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so, uh, I think it's quite clear that we can understand that, that God has so intended that the church is the bride of Christ. How, where that fits in with uh, We took the judgment seat of Christ first. What I've been trying to do is kind of trying to follow a sequence of events as they're given in Scripture. And of course, the Scriptures aren't all written in chronological order. So uh, some of them we can't be too sure uh, which comes first and which come together and all that. But see some of us grew up and we uh, heard people talking about the end of the world uh, with the idea that there's coming a day when suddenly all, everything is over. The uh, sinners go to hell, the believers go to heaven. But it's very interesting to me that these events are spread out in a period of time. There is a sense in which the first coming of Christ was like the beginning of all these events that will gradually unfold as time goes on. But uh, and uh, so even in the resurrection, here it talks about in. First Corinthians 15, it talks about Christ, the first one, and uh, then they that are his. And uh, I'm not quite sure uh, how many uh, different resurrections there are. I have one writer that says there are seven. And, of course, he has Christ, and then the church, and... Uh, He has uh, then the tribulation saints and uh, so on. Uh, We want to look a little bit at that. uh, And uh, but uh, thinking of the bride of Christ, did did you want to talk more? Anybody have anything to share on the on the marriage? I uh, if I would have uh, talked here. On this, uh, the last time, I had never noticed that there may be two events. But uh, there's a lot of writers that, uh, and of course uh, you get a little. Some of these places, you get to a place where the commentators don't agree. So where, where am I going to go? <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, anybody have anything you'd like to share on that? It was a whole new thought to me, and it was there all the time. I never, never got it. All right, uh, anything on the Bride of Christ? Yeah, uh, all right. I uh, picked up an article on that. And I, have you ever noticed that uh, uh, when Christ gives some of his uh, little stories, uh, he takes it like a man went into a far country and, uh, and then returned and all that. And some of that might come in into here, just, uh, 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 he would say that the marriage of the Lamb takes place between the rapture and the return of Christ to the earth. And then uh, there's a lot of different ideas about uh, what happens after that and when the supper is. But... Uh, I think that uh, from what I have seen, that uh, probably there is a possibility, may I say it that way, that at at the supper, the whole realm of believers of all ages will somehow be involved. I mean, I can see that possibility because I, I just see more and more how that uh, in the end, see, Jesus said something interesting in John 10. He was talking about there others, do I have that are not of this fold? Refer, I think he was referring to the Gentiles. And he said, I'm, I must bring them in too. And then he says, and there will be one, four will all be together and there will be one shepherd. So, are we going to fit in that? heard an interesting uh, illustration just the other Sunday evening where they uh, put together two bouquets of flowers And the one bouquet, all the flowers were the same. The other bouquet had a variety. And then they would decide which is the most beautiful bouquet. And it seemed like uh, general thinking was that the bouquet with the variety was the most beautiful. And the man was using it as an illustration of oneness in our diversity. And, uh, you know, we're not near all alike, but we didn't design how we should be made, but we have one that uh, that has a design and I think has a purpose in our diversity. But he does expect us to blend together. All right, I wanted to read about the... uh, The marriage. Uh, This writer says that uh, there seem to be three distinct phases in common with each other. And this has uh, the marriage contract or betrothal which was initiated between the parents and the bride and the representative of the bridegroom. This was usually confirmed by oaths and a gift. They call it a dowry to the bride's family. The marriage ceremony is a second phase here or wedding procession, which involved the bridegroom and his friends. They would come to the bride's home to take her back to the house of the bridegroom or the bridegroom's father. And then thirdly, the marriage supper or feast, which would be at the bridegroom's house or his fathers. This was attended by guests of the wedding party. So he says that, uh, by analogy, the church espoused to Christ by faith now awaits the parousia when the heavenly groom will come for his bride and return to heaven for the marriage feast, which uh, lasts throughout eternity, he says so. So I don't know, and uh, that's interesting. Now, if you go to the uh, the account of the uh, ten virgins, uh, that puts a, a light on it that some of us didn't see years ago. You know what that's all about, and apparently they didn't they didn't always know when he's coming. And so, do you know when Christ's coming? yeah all right well let's uh, did you ever see any scriptures that uh, Christ that God is referred to as the wife of Israel and I don't know what all that means but I find that kind of interesting all right, I didn't... Uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, uh, the bride of Christ is portrayed as the husband, or uh, is as a virgin espoused to her husband. The church is referred to as a hus- as a virgin Vows to her husband, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, <clears throat> all right, let's turn to Jeremiah, where God is portrayed as the husband. Jeremiah 31 and verse 32. I'll read verse, I'll begin in verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them. Saith the Lord, and uh, sometime you may want to read Hosea, the second chapter, and there you have that marriage situation, and uh, there's a picture there that uh, God will take Israel back. I mean that it's it is written figurative. And uh, he will take them back, not as a virgin, but as one redeemed and forgiven. And I find that very interesting. So you may want to read that sometime. And uh, so I want to uh, go to the next one. So Israel is viewed in the Old Testament as a widow, and uh, you want to go to Lamentations, the first uh, part there. It's going to print out all these uh, verses and then when I went to print my printer, it wouldn't do it for me. So here I am. Lamentations 1.1. 1, 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces, how... Is she become tributary? And so you have that. And then also you have uh, in Isaiah 54, 4 to 6. And uh, maybe I should just let somebody read that. Uh, Somebody want to get that? Yeah, and then in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, he talks about uh, them being divorced. see that's the thing if you read the book of jeremiah he has a number of statements about uh, the uh, the restoring of israel where uh, that there's a good one and uh, there's one place where he talks about uh, the lord said that he would uh, destroy all nations. But he said, I will not make a full end of thee. And just on and on. Now, he says, if you can change the course of the sun and the moon and the stars, then I'm finished with it. So, you know, and uh, we are... We are missing much of what the Scripture says if we conclude that that the church has replaced Israel. and that's uh, that's pretty prominent in some communities and in some churches. And uh, I don't know what they do with all the other Scriptures that contradict that. Now. Uh, also, in Jeremiah 3.8, he says, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And then... Uh, the next one has to do with restoration in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. Uh, someone want to read that? Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. It's just a couple pages back. I could have gotten that. Yeah, <laughs> and interesting, the word uh, hepfazab, hepzabah, uh means my delight, and uh, so, you know, uh, talking about restoration, Isaiah 54, 4 and 8 is another one, and I don't think I'm going to turn to that, you can... Uh, Write that down. Like, uh, and there it's as a restored wife that he's talking about Israel. All right, any comments, any questions uh, that you would like to uh, address? Yeah, we, uh, we miss the meaning of a lot of those uh, customs and rituals and, and things that, uh, that they did. And, uh, you know, I think God had a purpose in it for them and, uh, and so on. All right, uh, let's... Uh, Now we're, we had started with the return of Christ and we were talking about coming for his own and uh, there is uh, between uh, between the uh, rapture and the uh, and, uh, and Christ Uh, In power and great glory then we have some events taking place and uh, in uh, we have the great tribulation coming here in Matthew 24 uh, 21 and 22 Uh, Jesus said he's referring to the, the time when uh, he will come for judgment, and he says, "For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be." In verse twenty-four, he says, "And except those days should be shortened, there should be there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake." those days shall be shortened. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting statement there at the end of that verse, that the days will be shortened for the elect. Uh, and so it's one of the reasons why it doesn't seem as if as if God will take the church through the great tribulation. Uh, Jeremiah, in uh, verse 30, chapter 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And uh, we just have a, a number of, Illustrations in the in the scriptures. You take uh, uh, Abraham uh, there in uh, talking with those men that were going to uh, Sodom, and he he dwindled it down to what was it, uh, five righteous? You know, he started out with about forty-five. Will you destroy those with? If uh, you, you find that many righteous in, and uh, just kept on coming down, and so he took uh, his name. Who did he take out of Sodom? I can't get the name. Lot, yes, and his family, a uh, part of his family. And then you have uh, other uh, passages that, uh, that also talk about that. And, uh, you know, to the Church of Philadelphia in the uh, second chapter of uh, Revelation, he talks to them and he says uh, that uh, for those that overcome he will keep them out of the hour of, of uh, temptation. And I think that's uh, referring uh, to this. And so we have those in Daniel 12 then. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time. Time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. And uh, then we have in uh, from uh, Revelation 6 through 18. And uh, I had uh, referred to that uh, when we came to Daniel nine twenty seven, there, where uh, Daniel gave in a in a nutshell events that are spelled out in uh, Revelation six through eighteen, and uh, where you know the. In that period of time, the the church is not mentioned is that I know of, and uh, doesn't talk about the church, and so we think that he will probably spare them out of that. All right, I'd like to go from here then to... Uh, him coming with power and great glory, and uh, you know the uh, there in Revelation seven it talks about uh, that every eye shall see him, and uh, so where we have in First Corinthians fifteen. The Apostle Paul is talking about the time of Christ coming for his own, and it'll be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And and so those, again, uh, events are not at the same time. And there we could go to Daniel 9, uh, 14 through 17, and uh, see there how the uh... pardon? Yeah, I'm sorry, Daniel seven, nine to fourteen. Yeah, and uh, there, uh, you know, he has uh, talks about. that time, and uh, there's just a number of other places. So, you have anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, And again, we go to Matthew 24, and uh, there's again that... uh, And then he uh, also Jesus refers to there of immediately after the tribulation of the, those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the power of heaven shall be shaken. And uh, uh, verse 30, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, I don't have uh, that passage where it talks about the sky is rolling back like a scroll and men crying for rocks and mountains to, uh, to cover them when they see Judgment coming. Uh, Alan Lee Stolz made a statement on that one one time. He said, uh, "Very interesting that uh, people cry for rocks and mountains to fall on them at a time when they're disappearing, and uh, you know the earth is melting, and they cry for something that will cover them so, so they don't have to face it." There is, and in uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 1, 7 through 10, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from glory, from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Several things in this passage. Uh, one is that uh, in verse 8, he's putting those that don't know God and those that obey not the gospel in the same class. And uh, I'm not sure what all that uh, that means. And then, uh, you know... Uh, And I think one of the most agonizing thing in this picture is that they will be separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You know, All darkness, uh, nothing, no hope. When I think of him coming in glory and great power, I guess I don't have that scripture on here. Uh, Jude talks about uh, him coming with ten thousands of his angels and, and so on. And uh, but. Uh, I think of the trial of Jesus when I think of him coming with power and great glory. Remember the high priest was asking Jesus, I'm not quite sure of the wording there, but he was asking him if he is the Son of God. Now, he didn't say it in those words, but that was the question that was asked. And Jesus' answer to him was, When you see me again, you will see me coming with power and great glory. And the scriptures tell us that he rent his clothes. He knew, apparently. What Jesus was, what Jesus was referring to, and was identifying himself to the one that's coming with power and great glory, and uh, so he uh, somehow uh, just uh, couldn't handle that, and of course accused him very, uh, very uh, much of blasphemy, And of course, would have been blasphemy if anybody else would have said that. But, all right, anything you'd like to, any questions you'd like to address? In the uh, in the epistles, there is uh, a very definite, and maybe I should have picked that up in Second uh, Thessalonians, uh, how he says that there, but uh, there in Second Peter, the passage I had pulled up. It says, we, according to his promise, is referring to the believers in Jesus Christ. In Thessalonians, you will s- see that the writer using we and they, us and them, and uh, making a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And uh, so we uh, thank the Lord that... Uh, we can. Did you want to say anything more on that, Jonas? Yeah. Well, see, there in Thessalonians, it also tells us that the day of the Lord, this day of power and great glory, should not overtake us as a thief in the night because we are of the day we're not of the night we know what's happening and we're alert and so we shouldn't be surprised when that day comes and uh, very interesting alright just a few things then in Revelation 20 uh, right around somewhere in this, when, uh, when Christ comes, the, uh, Satan is bound. And you can turn to Revelation 20 if you want to. And he says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Revelation and the third verse says, and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should not, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. One of the, I don't know how to say it, uh, I guess a little difficult scriptures is this one here that after the thousand year reign, he is going to be loosed for a little bit. And just how all that. Uh, is to work out, I don't know. But, uh, all right, well, we have come to this, and uh, from here, I expect to go to what the Bible says about the thousand-year reign. And, uh, very interesting that I have found in writings of the early church that up until about the, somewhere the first two, three hundred years of the early church they taught and they believed that there would be a thousand year reign. And so... In that era of time, if you read the writings of that time, it is uh, it is said that uh, anyone who would not have believed in a thousand year reign would have been considered a heretic. And there was no one in the church up until about uh, 430, somewhere around there. And so, uh, maybe you uh, want to uh, uh, find out what you can find out about what the Bible says about a thousand-year reign uh, for our next session. And uh, we'll just uh, take that. And, and uh, because here, uh, even this, the first part of this, I'm appalled at the commentators and the writers as how they explain this away in saying that that doesn't mean a literal chain or anything like that. I don't care if it's a literal chain or what it is, but we believe, because the word says so, that Satan will be bound in those thousand years, and... uh, from there, uh, you know. If you think about it, that's a long time. But I don't know how time will be. But I am um, somehow in my journey of uh, this on this subject has uh, done something to me and for me in uh, somehow seeing that God's program is much greater than what I can fathom. And we can only get a, a glimpse and uh, I don't know uh, how it will be, but I, I am a firm believer that uh, when the Bible says this is the way it is, that's the way it's going to be. I had a Bible school teacher that would tell us, he said, if the Bible doesn't mean what it says, no one can say what it means. And I think that's right. Now, oh, we have scriptures like Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. the secret things belong to God. Um, but uh, and I hear people using that, but they don't read the whole ch- whole verse. It
1: says that, uh,
0: but the things that he has revealed are given for us and for our children. And, uh, you know, we're living in a day when uh, the Holy Spirit indwells the believers. And even with us, a- passage where it says eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard neither hath entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for us Something I might not be the exact words and then he let us at that the next verse says but God has revealed them to us by his spirit and so they, I believe he wants us to know and I don't you could ask me a lot of questions that I probably couldn't answer. But uh, I'm not as much concerned who says what as I am. What does the Bible say? And we want to try to stay with that. And so uh, we uh, just thank the Lord for giving us his word. And I believe it's given to us because he wants us to learn. And just like, for an illustration, uh, five weeks ago, if I would have uh, talked about the uh, the uh, marriage supper of the lamb. I would have taken that as one event and only seen part of it as I see it today. And I'm not finished with that. I I need to uh, look further into that. So. I'll let you close, John. Thank you for coming. Pray for us. that we could, I'd like to uh, go to the, the thousand-year reign and uh, look at uh, uh, maybe I should give an assignment. Uh, see how many verses you can find in the Old Testament that talk about a thousand-year reign. It isn't used used in that term, but it's uh, talking about a uh, restoration and some things like that. I think uh, probably uh, Revelation 20 is the only chapter that spells out a thousand years, but mentions mentions it six
1: times in that one chapter.